Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. What do you think of these uh, sunglasses? Am I pulling this off? Uh, you certainly have a curatorial look to you with those on. I'll give mm-hmm. you that. These grandma cat eye uh, Versace sunglasses? You kind of look like one of the characters from uh, Grey Gardens. I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> they're, a, uh, <laughs> they're a look, though. I think, I think if we went back to Milan, you would really stand out amongst the crowd. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really thought I could do like a Kurt Cobain oh, type yeah. thing, you know, wearing some cat eye sunglasses. Right. But I think instead I just, you know, look like an old divorcee, <laughs> a, a, a New York socialite. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. But I mean, it's cool. Like, OK, so did I did I tell you how I found these? I kept passing by these sunglasses on my walk to work huh. uh, on the sidewalk multiple days. And then finally, I leaned over to throw them out, you know, right. just so it's not litter. And I, I lean over. Not only are they in good condition, mm-hmm. I see on the inside, it says, like, Versace, made in Italy. Whoa. It's got the little Medusa heads on them. Bro, what? Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm captivated by them. Right. I, I uh, you know, I probably will just sell them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, you know, get some get some money on depop or whatever yeah absolutely yeah but you know this is the only interesting thing to have happened to me in the last week okay but you say that like it's not a big deal but i'm pretty sure if you know at any point finding versace sunglasses on the sidewalk is a pretty big deal not gonna lie i mean that's like finding a hundred dollars well yeah it's around. it's one it's it's a pair of three hundred dollar sunglasses that yeah. i didn't have yesterday and now you have them yeah, I mean, typically when I just find stuff, like, because, you know, I thrift a lot. Right, right. So, you know, in the pockets of jackets and shirts I have bought, I have found hmm. syringes. Oh, uh, I found some pills in between the lining of an old jacket once and thought, ooh, this is interesting. Because, uh, like, you know, the jacket's from, like, the 60s and 70s. I'm like, is this where they hid their drugs? And then right. I looked up what the drugs were, and it's like a, uh, you know, it's basically just allergy medication. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> so it's probably more reflecting uh, old elderly diabetic people that probably right. owned the uh, the old Dickies shirts <laughs> that I find. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> But you know, speaking of relics, right. uh, Joe, what are uh, we? What do we got here today? This is very exciting. Yeah, we here at the museum are kicking off a three-week show. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we will be cur- Well, we are actually. We are the curators of this exhibit here of art in the 20th century um, that through the Uncanny County Museum, anonymous donors, you know, all those fun foundations. We have put together this three week long exhibition um, exploring the roots of 20th century art, not only through a Western gaze, but trying to look outward um, to these conversations and to these periods uh, that have been had, what was going on during this time, and kind of breaking it down into three sections or so that will be taking uh, you all here on these tours through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we have a cool opportunity here because, you know, currently all of this stuff is undergoing changes, like right now as we speak, yeah. like as we uh, culturally reevaluate uh, 20th century art. Uh-huh, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because you'll hear the term modern art thrown around right. just a kind of at everything no one really <laughs> understanding how to use that but this is actually kind of a nice uh a nice way for us to talk about things that i think we've made reference to before but this will be um an attempt on our part to try to tell a story which itself is is a a bizarre task to do for the 20th century because the 20th century if we're talking about the art canon especially through the lens of european and american uh art practice is about disrupting Mm -hmm. the idea of a grand narrative and that there is one story um so we're going to you know, there's going to be some familiar faces, there's going to be some new faces, but we are going to try to form some kind of human narrative out of all of this. Uh, Out of of this mess, this absolute (laughs) mess of art in this century. There's so much to talk about. There's so many different things that have happened, and this really does lay the groundwork, um, you know, for the decades to come and kind of even where we're at in contemporary art. And also, you know, we'll highlight a little bit of the differences between the terms for contemporary versus modern because, you know, like Zan said, that's often a misconception that's thrown around and you know the the history and the familiarity isn't always mm-hmm. quite there and uh unfortunately that's also due to some of the history i think surrounding um some of mm-hmm. the the art you know lingo or linguistics or things of, of how these this time period is explained and, and what yeah mind. i mean well when you learned mm-hmm. when you first sort of learned about this stuff like what was your initial impression were you were you confused? Did you feel like this is just pretentious art, uh, you know, art for artists only um, and for, you know, critics that wear big scarves and go to, <laughs> you know, and, and, and go to parties? Like, what, what was your mm-hmm. reaction when you first learned about this kind of art? Um... Uh... I I mean, I guess it's kind of hard to say because I, I tend to take everything in artistically and really sit with it and see what I like and what I don't like. It's hard for me to just be like, to be like, I don't like this. Mm-hmm. I usually have to mm-hmm. really hate it, right? Or it really frustrates <laughs> me. Uh, modern art or in general, like art in the 20th century, a lot of this stuff, um, 
you know, later on, I think I enjoy more, like in the 50s and Arta Povera and other things like that, uh, really, mm-hmm. really hit home for me. It's something I'm really interested in. I, I really, really uh, appreciated, you know, modernist painting and uh, this kind of movement away from, from realism and its sort of grand narrative um, pretty early mm-hmm. on. But I think in my, you know, beginning bachelor degree years, I was confused and a little like, I don't know. Not, I, I don't want to say annoyed, but like hesitant, I guess, to understand right. and to really figure it out and sit with it and, and understand that. Because I think um, when you, you look at this time period, you also get the artist as celebrity and as kind of right. this personality. And if there's one thing I really don't like about the art world at the time is that, is this idea of the the, the artist is the mm-hmm. visionary, the curator is the person that puts it together and they can do whatever they want. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm glad we're not in that anymore because it, it makes things a lot better. <laughs> but I think that well, was my we're, we're also in that, it, we're, we're in that moment right now also because we keep learning everybody that we like is a trash person. I mean, yeah, so that, that doesn't help. But I think it's also what, what became more interesting for me is seeing um, this the different cultures around this time period and the different artworks that were coming out. Um, and, and I know I was drawn to it for illustration. I modeled a lot of my early works on modernist painting and, and looking at the Cubists and looking at, you know, um, the Italian futurists and, and so on. Of course, then mm-hmm. you learn the history of these movements and it gets a little uncomfortable uh, because I think, you know, one thing that's not necessarily always taught early on in art school uh, and maybe because it's just overwhelming is, you know, that, Artworks follow a lineage and they come from a specific mm-hmm. place and they, you know, continue on in that way. And so depending on where you make your references yeah. or not, it can be uh, important, you know. But I, I, how about you? How did you react when you first kind of learned and ran into this type of artwork? I mean, I think I was in high school before I really was shown like this stuff. Um, you know, I think it was like AP art history where, okay, I was really shown like, okay, we're going to like, what, like, what, what is a Rothko? What is, what is he doing, um, with these paintings? Because up until that point in art history, you feel like, especially if you're, you know, going through art history, learning about it in a Eurocentric lens, um, the modernists really seem to come out of nowhere and it can be quite shocking because you're watching um, painting get progressively more and more um, detailed or uh, more and more graven all the time. Right. Uh, pushing representation uh, in this very literal way. And then suddenly you have a complete rejection of that. Mm, Yeah. And I think, you know, you feel like, well, why? Why did they give up on what seems like very beautiful uh, (laughs) artwork? Yeah. And I think what we're kind of going to talk about also is any time that something suddenly becomes popular or something suddenly comes onto a large scale radar Mm. it has to have predated it in some more secluded place and i think the the things that we will start to see are that there are these isolated pockets uh isolated 
for a multitude of reasons, class, race, or just uh, philosophy, of people sharing ideas, working together within a community, and then eventually that thing itself becomes mainstream. Right, yeah. And this is the, the, the bizarre thing about art at this point is that these schools have to balance their their ideologies with the consequences of mass consumption because Mm. once you enter into the 1900s and photography is becoming more and more prevalent it's becoming easier and easier to reproduce things everything is mechanized yeah really everything is mass producible Mm -hmm. how you know you it it can lead you down a weird path of trying to make everything universal yeah and i feel like we run into issues with that very quickly um especially you know once we get to uh especially mid-century with uh civil rights not, not that civil rights didn't exist decades before in uh you know uh pre-world war uh too mm-hmm. but um you know this is th- th- these are problems of people trying to make something for everybody and right. the the misconceptions that can go with that and this idea that maybe art is not just meant to be something to hang above someone's sofa yeah yeah mm-hmm. absolutely no i mean i think i think um that's kind of the new movement here that we mm-hmm. see is this change of of that notion as well mm-hmm. to sort of jump right into it where we're coming out of so in the 1800s um there is already this recognition of sort of the problems of very defined art with a narrative right um when the impression the impressionists are not necessarily associated not that i'm speaking of very broad terms here but the impressionists and later the uh, the realist painters you know they were wanted to paint looser not only because photography had been invented at that point mm, true but they're also painting because the hyper defined super uh developed paintings of uh of uh you know the the earlier periods those did not meet their sensibilities because they were very clearly products of the studio people started to recognize that a very neatly defined painting with fully resolved edges and shapes uh was was something that was made in the studio somebody didn't right. sit there and see this because you know the world doesn't stop moving for you to <laughs> make a painting uh-huh. people started to recognize this and they started to appreciate the looser uh composed things because it m- often meant oh the painter actually had to go outside of the studio to get the references for this or this might have even been painted on site, right. which itself is a bit of a misconception with um, <laughs> impressionist painters. Yeah, but so so that is already on the mind of people's art. You know, you can even see this with Cezanne. Cezanne 
talks a lot about the truth in painting mm-hmm. um and well what is that <laughs> is 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 truth portraying things uh in, in a in a certain way or is truth leaving things up to you the viewer mm. to decide uh what is true because we it becomes more and more apparent that there are more points of view than are are previously taken into consideration that paintings of kings and statesmen and historic battles that this is not necessarily the things that define the history of humanity the realists are going to start painting you know people laboring people working in fields people uh going about their lives because there's more and more of a recognition that this is most of human history not mm. just the handful of people that live at the top yeah benefiting off of the labor of others you have so many different ideas going on here um and it, it it's going to start to unravel re-ravel unravel again <laughs> so um yeah I guess uh, I I guess we should just hop on into this. I yeah I think so. It's probably the best way um, to to keep us you know to kind of propel us into this rather than to uh, get lost to a certain extent because there is a lot here <laughs> as we said. But you know Zan and I have curated a selection of artists of readings of uh, you know moments in time that are happening uh, to kind of mm-hmm. talk about and I, and I think you know pairing off on what on what you just said. Um, I think, you know, it's important to realize too, kind of what's going on at this time. So what is the turn of the century? We're entering the 1900s, industry's booming, and imperialism is still kind of rampant. We're gearing up for World War One. that's about to happen in 19, mm-hmm. um, gosh, 1914, right? And it's yeah. just this massive exchange of cultural ideas. You know, the United States forced Japan open not too long ago. And now there's a cultural yeah. exchange happening there uh, due to, unfortunately, colonization. You know, people are. It's then so interesting about... that this chronologically works perfectly oh, with our previous episode on the Titanic. I know, right? I was, I was thinking, <laughs> I was like, my God, this is fantastic in a way. Because, you know, how else do you start an exhibit on art in the 20th century without visiting the legend of the Titanic? You know, there's something you should know. So I'm going <laughs> to tell you so. Don't sweat it. Forget it. Enjoy the show. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a rapping dog here to guide us through this wondrous exhibit. But just in, in laying out that timeline, um, where should we start, Zan? Um, well, I do like your uh, your <laughs> intro with the opening of Japan, because right. that does a lot of interesting things to European art and also Asian art, because there is this uh, cultural exchange that you mentioned just a moment ago. European art greatly benefits mm-hmm. from this sudden interest in the orient yeah uh you know because um especially and this begins in the 1800s this begins a bit earlier but um the introduction of outlines to painting comes mm-hmm. in i mean even someone like john singer Sargent, who i think is like the most even though he's american the most french post-impressionist <laughs> painter yeah you know is he's such a he's he's such a a a dandy you know uh painter's painter right you know he is the 
the he he just is so much of that mm-hmm. someone uh with uh a a a gay man living abroad who's been trained in art and ends up in you know scandalous situations but mm. is you know always revered for his ability sometimes has to split town at the last minute you know how artists are yeah um and but but even his work is uh influenced by this so right. many of these artists at this time would have had collections of japanese prints mm-hmm. um you know printmaking becoming very popular uh one of my uh one of my professors in art history would talk about how at this time you know if you couldn't afford paintings and you couldn't afford uh you know statues you could still purchase prints and you could still uh you know purchase um uh casts yeah uh made of of objects we're right. we're sort of starting to enter into uh this reproducible art period and you know japanese prints are are interesting in that way because one it's this to, to the europeans at least it's this very exotic <laughs> um thing yeah. that's happening outside of their world as there's more and more communication and more sort of homogeny mm-hmm. you know there is this uh there there's this search for something else this whole period leading up to then there was this fascination with the orient the idea of the east um and that they had decided that Europeans had decided their culture was that that almost their his their their history was coming to an end, right? You know, this is uh this is a very uh, Nietzsche uh, <laughs> idea that Europe is slowly secularizing. Mm. They're going through uh you know the they've they've gone through the Enlightenment. They're going through the Scientific Revolution. You know, uh they they perceive themselves as even though they are now increasingly aware of all of the cultures all over the world uh, and had i think genuine interest in some of them uh you know some of it was incredibly dehumanizing you know yeah. you can look at uh kipling's uh you know the white man's burden right uh yeah. and and the jungle book as like you know, his uh his idea that it's europe's job to civilize the rest of the world jesus um you know uh I, you know you, you can even see by this uh swastika covered uh uh kipling book right here the swastika having not yet been co-opted by uh the nazis later Mm -hmm. um i guess we can kind of make that you know at least say at least say that of kipling he wasn't a nazi he wasn't imperialist right but you are in this era where europe sees itself in this end of history period they are rooted in logic and reason and the rest of the world is still living in this this dream trance of mysticism 
and uh, the, these these crumbling uh, mm -hmm. ancient empires. That's the fascination. You look at Delacroix paintings. You look at uh, ba basically all, all of all of the you know Orientalist paintings. Right. That is what the fascination is. But at, just as Europe is intaking all mm -hmm. of these things, you know, either from uh, you know, stealing things from places they have colonized or trading to, you know, receive uh, artwork and finery from around the world. I think you can't discount what is mm -hmm. uh, being reinterpreted by the cultures that they themselves come into contact with, because those are also mm -hmm. cultures with their own agency, with with people, with real people. That's that's the thing that we uh, can't lose sight of. These yeah. aren't um these uh these primitives that uh that the europeans would have thought of yeah exactly these are people with uh, you know their own artistic visions and also heritages and other things that come in and, and curiosity and it's mm -hmm. not this isolated world that i think the canons tend to make it out to be um you know and and i think now more than ever we're kind of revisiting that and exploring it as well and it's a, it's a good thing to kind of i think take into account mm -hmm. a lot of perspectives yeah. that are going into to art making in in the 20th century in the early 20th century um and one that that yeah. we have here if we can just kind of walk this way to our first uh print that i want to show is um mm -hmm. a a a uh, woodblock or japanese woodblock print uh, titled Zojo Temple in Snow, which was done in 1925 by Hasui Kawase, a very famous Japanese woodblock printer from Tokyo, who um, this work in particular was actually um, put into um, the Japanese Committee for the Preservation of Intangible Cultural Heritage. Um, and it's been deemed an in, intangible cultural treasure. And so his, wow. his, yeah, he received that in kind of the later years of his life. And he's working from kind of 1919 to 1957 when he passes away. Um, and, you know, he's, his history is rather interesting because he started as a painter um, and moved into woodblock printing and was actually kind of hmm. known for traveling around Japan um, and you know, doing sketches and, and making these kind of, you know, proofs for prints and then bringing them into the studio and, and doing these really nice landscape paintings That's or landscape mm. uh, prints. But they, they look, I say paintings because they just, they're gorgeous. I mean, if you look at this one mm -hmm. here, you know, we have this this red kind of palace and temple matched against the snow and the delicate line work used for it. It's, it's mm -hmm. incredible. Um, and, you know, he's renowned for his use of natural lighting and the way that he paints the landscapes kind of, you know, naturalistically, but still in the style. Um, mm -hmm. And what's interesting is, you know, he actually took some of his influence for, you know, making these works from Western painting. Because, you know, he would be familiar with the canons and the ancient kind of Renaissance artists and, you know, moving into the romantics and so on. And, and I think that that's kind of an interesting switch like i always you know you always hear the kind of europeans are taking from the japanese uh prints and line work and so on but this is kind of an opposite approach to that of this cultural exchange well, the, thing, the thing that people forget um to that point is that part of japan's history of technological yeah. innovation um was that they traded with the dutch yeah. and traded specifically for like science textbooks i think yeah the Japanese recognized um, 
you know, when when mm-hmm. when when the Japanese were not, you know, being forced to o- open their borders, <laughs> right, <laughs> at the risk of uh, naval obliteration. Yeah, they recognized a, an opportunity to learn from mm-hmm. uh, the technological advances of that they themselves had made. And that they could also then take in from uh, European traders, you know, yeah. studying electricity and mathematics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, uh, it's it, it's incredible to see this, to see this exchange go both ways. Y- you know, I, w- when I was abroad in Australia, I took an Aborigine, uh, mus- Aboriginal music class. Mm. And one thing that really uh, struck me was, because I think I went into that class assuming, okay, we're going to, like, learn about different, like, I don't know, didgeridoo music, right? Sure. You know, in, 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 in my own, like, you know, probably slightly ignorant way is where I, I don't know. I don't know very much about Aboriginal music. I saw the I saw the movie Australia with wow, Hugh yeah. Jackman and Nicole Kidman. I mean. Mm-hmm. That'll do um, it. That's really all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Australia. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, because I, I I know way more about the the biological history uh-huh. of Australia than I maybe do the human history. Interesting. Um, yeah. which is at this point very intertwined. Humans have been living in Australia for tens of thousands of years. Mm, true. So w- one of the things I was fascinated by was the adoption of blues music huh. by and country music by a lot of uh. 20th century aboriginal artists and bands um and that was i think what was you know and, and in part it's the soft power of america exporting its own culture and music right but you're in, in your own brain you're with as an american you're coming into this thinking wait this is our thing why on earth would this relate to someone literally on the other side of the world and you have to remember that the other other people are capable of (laughs) you know other people are capable of seeing the the interest and the value of these modes of expression right um and uh i'm you know because japan and china and and korea we we know them as cultures that uh that had a history of representational art somewhat similar not but not quite the same as Europe but yeah they they had that history that you feel like i i hesitate to say Europeans could relate to but like hmm. that they that they shared some kind of common language of uh in terms of visuals yeah uh that they could appreciate each other's aesthetics because that that's the weird thing about all of this isn't it that right the europeans would colonize subjugate and and just destroy these cultures and yet were constantly consuming the cultural (sighs) output of these places yeah they could not get enough of chinese and japanese fashion and furniture and uh 
uh, everything from this time period, but the people, the, the, the people themselves that were making these things, they were curiosities. They were simple uh, or in, in a harmless sense, they would see them as, you know, simple people lower than them. In another sense, they would see them as evil scheming uh, people of a different race you know right yeah um, that that's that's sort of the, the bizarre thing about this whole exchange yeah well i mean like that's that's i think what was so frustrating for me you know building you know when when looking into what to bring in here for the curatorial studies on this and and what to bring into the exhibit it was frustrating in a way cuz you know you're looking for outside artists working at the time and it's really so centered on on europe um and and european artists making it or you know all the art that's coming out of it are people who went from different countries like in in south america and in africa to you know europe to study to study that type mm -hmm. of art making and are making things similar to that canon but you know at the end of you know when looking for something unique and different that's happening at the time and reported it's very hard and the reason being is because of colonization and we can't really, mm -hmm. I, I think, dance around it either and just being kind of blunt about it. It is a, a you know, imperialism is rampant still at this time mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. will be until after World War II. And unfortunately, it's kind of decimated a lot of different cultural movements. I mean, look at, this is one part of the research I can share. You know, just Google architecture from like the 1850s to the 1950s. You will not find anything that is not eurocentric there's like three mm -hmm. three different things that are happening and they don't really develop until later independently from a eurovision um and not the concert but eurovision? i think vision yeah. like, like abba no no not <laughs> like abba abba would probably be into making something strange and architectural but that was like i think something that was uh, uh, frustrating in a way you know you and you think yeah. about it and it, it it kind of plays into the the part here but i think again you know this is sort of our move now i think in understanding and reevaluating this time period yes. and starting to see hey maybe let's not focus on like i mean yes picasso is important of course to the canons of art history but maybe like what's happening besides that where's he getting the influence from where they those artisans working from because i think there's always this focus on um i mean really you know one a male dominated force uh, in mm -hmm. art and a, and a voice in that way but then also again this this eurocentric one and i think it's such a good time to start a, getting away from mm -hmm. that and and you know it's kind of like which leads us to our our next uh part here that i wanted to bring up on um kind of even where abstract art comes from because i think we've hesitated mm -hmm. a little bit in talking about it um uh, and it, and of course we'll talk about it a little later in the next part of this uh exhibit but you know even where that originally was started from and the, the history that we thought where it came from, which was, um, it, it, it's, a, you know, it's, um, I believe it to be from um, Kandinsky, from Buzeli Kandinsky being the first mm -hmm. abstract painter in this way of geometric shapes, because there's a lot of different facets of abstracted art. Um, but when we're looking specifically in the 1900s, yeah, like, it's, do you go back to, yeah, because if you want to talk about abstract art, you know, I think, it's it's like who is who is the first to go fully abstract i think is is this next question because yeah you know, i feel like there's there's people that would there there's people before that are starting to abstract 
add abstract concepts mm-hmm. to objective images, you know, your yes. turners of the century prior. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is also the terminology problem that we see when people mm-hmm, just throw around, mm-hmm. like I just did, when you throw around abstract of like, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, it's abstracted. And, and abstracted could mean, yeah, like Turner, or it could also mean like, you know, your, um, um, yeah, like Kandinsky, like I just mentioned, or other yeah. constructivists. So yeah, um, but but, I, but you know, thinking of these things as um, in, in terms of w- what we're typically shown, right, as the as the uh, the story of art in this period is when you you know, I know we don't we're not going to focus on him, but for no. you know just a brief recap of Picasso and Picasso at his at what picasso means to art history is here is someone who is trained in classical representational art mm-hmm. and masters it at a very young age and then is bored by that <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> yeah same. and this is this is the thing to to remember that picasso observed that drawing things that that appeared to perfectly recreate the visual experience did not um what was was kind of hollow at the end of it once you reached through to the other side you dug through all of that he and he talks about it as it is just a skill it's a trick right it's a craft it's not you know being this boundary pushing artist whatever that means yeah and picasso you know want you know he talks about uh, you know it took him this many years to learn how to paint like Raphael, and it took him a lifetime to learn to paint like a child you know that's Mm -hmm. that's I'm, i'm paraphrasing but that's the quote that gets thrown around a lot because picasso recognizes that um you have to unlearn yeah things in order to express yourself like this now what picasso is doing is he's looking at things other things and other cultures for inspiration he's looking at um like a lot of uh tribal masks from uh, africa and other you know indigenous forms of art and co-opting them and turning them into something for european consumption you know, and, and, you know, you can, you can write off a lot of this as just this was the sensibility of the time. But the more insidious thing here is that you're, you're looking at those masks as curiosities. Right. And Picasso's work is art, capital A, art. Yeah. Yeah. Not the, um, not the objects but, themselves, right? Um, yes. And, you know, that's not all Picasso did. He's, you know, was also involved in, like, cubism and uh, yeah. a lot of other, you know, interesting <laughs> stuff. And and honestly, some work that I really do, uh, I really do love. I think, sure. Guer- I think Guernica is rightfully one of the, you know, one of the most famous paintings of, yeah. of the early 20th century. Right. Yeah. I think that is, that is a rightfully well-renowned work. But we have to keep these other things in mind mm-hmm. that th- this is this is what we are complicit in yeah. when we only view Picasso's work through the the previous lens of this is 
this is the capital A artist, yeah. artistic genius. Yeah, exactly. I think that's uh, the problematic part of that because I don't think there's necessarily the harm in, in trying to understand all perspectives of art history as we go through these mm-hmm. time periods. I mm-hmm. think that's important um, because I think it's so easy to kind of just like write things off as bad and then continue on your way. I think it's important to take yeah, into account I, everything. Well, that that you know that's and we've talked about this before. That's the thing I wince at in art classes where yeah we make passing reference to picasso because you have to yeah exactly it's not there's kind of no way around a big deal he's you know personality (laughs) he's awful again it's part of that that celebrity artist i don't like right you know and and you don't have to be friends with them it's okay but we can't necessarily uh neglect either what was happening at that time and what he contributed whether you like it or not Mm -hmm. it's up to you of course Mm -hmm. but you know that's why we don't have any here. But, but um, you know, and, and in going into that, you know, this relearning or this this unlearning, yes. as you actually said, is such an interesting topic even now. Unlearning to learn something is so important. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to use Picasso's logic against him. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's what, what he would have wanted. But <laughs> is it? No, no. <laughs> He's probably rolling in his grave as we say it, um, because he knows who I am, of course. But um... I think I think Picasso. You know what? If 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 there is some other realm, Picasso is looking back on this from. I feel like he would just shrug and be like, "Eh, I got away with it for that long." Eh, yeah, probably. I can't complain. Yeah, I can't honest complain. to God. Hi there. My name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. <laughs> but but in and in, in moving into that and, and kind of this idea of again the abstraction or um this this kind of movement towards geometrical shapes and simplistic ones and and it's it's not really minimalism, so I don't really want to use that either, but this idea of um the language of painting becoming something much different and much more um you know, occult in some ways and also uh you know, oh, can, we're gonna start. Talking well, we're about gonna we're gonna have no, we're gonna have to for this next artist I want to talk about. Well, the, these well, next paintings that we that yeah we have coming up on our tour. So these are very exciting. Yes, yes. Uh, would you like to introduce these? I would. Yeah, we got a couple here. We have um, well, a, a series of uh, paintings for the temple, and um, and the other uh, series of paintings, the ten biggest, and these are done by the artist Hilma Alf Klimt, uh, the Swedish artist who has been kind of more recently discovered in the canon and recognized in the canon of art history mm-hmm. um, as the first abstract painter or of truly abstracted yes. geometrical shaped painter. And, yes. and this was originally, like I said, uh, associated with Kandinsky and and you know Pierre Mondrian, uh, Malevich. Mm-hmm. You know these were kind of the candidates originally, but she beat him to it. Uh, because she, mm-hmm. the first reported yeah. uh, painting is in 1906, and this would be for paintings uh, for the temple. And and why I mentioned occult is because uh, in kind of her earlier works and where she's coming from, it was a lot of automatic uh, writing, automatic drawing uh, that was well, going she into would it. Talk, she would talk about how she was almost channeling yes. the painting. Yeah. She, 
she would paint things and then try to figure out what she was painting about. That the right. paintings were coming through her. This is <clears throat> this is kind of fascinating in you know, she's <laughs> she's a very involved with the you know, the the occult and mysticism which yes. at, at this time, you know, this is turn of the nineteenth uh turn of the nineteenth into the twentieth century. This is incredibly popular stuff. Yeah, well, like, because what you're what you're alluding to with that, with the channeling, is is essentially what automatic writing, automatic drawing is. That's the kind of the, this this popular thing at the time, and and actually, it does show up later in an artist. I'll have to, mm-hmm. I guess, mention because not yet. It's a little precursor, a little aperitif, but it's gonna come back because this is a, <laughs> this is something that's also very different if you think about it as intent. This is an artist, you know, painting. Not for the sake of painting and not necessarily for the sake of the grand narrative or to change something. It's to let things flow through, to let mm-hmm. be it spirits, beings, themselves, the life force energy as we know it, anything, you know, this kind of intuitive response to making something and having it come through in production. That's, you know, yeah, talk about mysticism and this kind of power mm-hmm. of creation. And the paintings are, you know, a lot of them are astounding in, in, in all honesty and very they interesting. They really are. Because, okay, so she, her first, she starts doing this in 1906. Yeah, yeah, really early. This, and... this beats everyone else to this it, that, that we typically study. Yeah. And I don't think this, it, 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 it's so weird, because I, I think this epitomizes mm-hmm. a lot of what our revision of history has been, where... This, you know, does not necessarily diminish the accomplishments of other more famous artists because she was not widely exhibiting these. Yeah. She's using... uh, I I, I won't say that there's, you know, there's no chance that there could have been some crossover because she did know famous people. More, yeah. or more famous people from this time and we'll get into that in a moment um but what what you're talking about is very interesting she is not viewing these as a means to uh she, she's doing these for almost different reasons than those yeah. other artists yeah so this this does not conflict with our narrative of history as much as it as much as it adds to it this shows something happening independently this shows you this shows you that people are on the same track independently Mm -hmm. you can see this happen over and over again in history as you know even darwin you know mid to late 1800s as he is putting together the theory of evolution we look back now and we realize there were contemporaries of his that were also getting so close yeah there were a lot of people working on this and i think when you add hilma of clint to the canon Mm -hmm. what you do is you make you, you suddenly illuminate the fact that there is something happening within this society mm-hmm. that is bringing about this awakening. And it's almost... It's it's why I don't like people getting too fixated on the image of how important an artist would be. Right. And, and I don't want to say that everything is inevitable, 
<laughs> but if it wasn't yeah. some of these artists it would have been someone, that got yeah. famous it would have been something else something like this was almost weirdly meant to happen there was mm-hmm. going to be something that that captivated people because people all across europe were dealing with this feeling of old spirituality is dead what what will take its place this is the whole as society is fundamentally changing right what will take the place of our old and and the feeling at the time was outmoded feeling Mm. of purpose and spiritual fulfillment yeah, and I mean that's kind of yeah. Again, that's that's what we're seeing here, and I think that's it's so fascinating as well. What you said that it, it would have happened anyway, uh, because mm-hmm. and, and in a way it kind of did, right? Because it's like it's yeah. it was happening regardless of when this was. But you know, maybe she starts in 1906. It doesn't necessarily mean that like there could be someone actually. You know, one thing to think about: there could be someone else out there that we haven't discovered yet that was also doing something yeah. similar. Um, it's one thing to always keep in mind in the art world as these people kind of get discovered later on posthumously. It's always so fascinating totally. to add to this this timeline. Um, but you know, and 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 unfortunately, in the sad kind of section of this though too is you know she's only working as an artist from like you know the late 1800s into 1917, and then she just stops. Um, or at least mm-hmm. starts producing art through the spirit is in, in that kind of call. And I, and I think that that it, is it, it, it is interesting though. Cause in 1917, that's about the time that, uh, yeah, the more famous, uh, uh, abstract expressionists would have started to, uh, yeah. started to be working. I, um, you know, and, and then just a little bit later, you would have your, your Mondrian's and your, uh, yep uh kandinsky's malevich's red square and so right you know yeah no i mean that's the thing it's she stops or and actually she stops from bad criticism from um uh Mm -hmm. from rudolf steiner of basically just being a yeah just basically (laughs) being a dick if you if you know about you know uh, if you know about that because he he essentially just is like she invites him in to look at the paintings and for him to be her teacher and he's like nah these are bad and just the general concept and every like this this uh you know i'm i'm paraphrasing for the sake of us yeah. moving but really like you know just just being discouraging as a teacher and, yeah. and refusing but like all, right you, you you wonder right because is this like the whole is this like the thing that we like to imagine happens in you know every biopic ever or every story that people have about the Beatles, about mm. them going into some record producer is like, you suck, you'll never make it. And then they made it. And yeah. then they made it. I mean... And I guess she didn't really make it, but... Well, I mean, I think we've seen this story. That's the thing. <laughs> like, this is a... Fam- this this hit hard for me. I mean, luckily, I never had this horrible criticism but there are people like that mm-hmm. also there is there is yeah. a bit of uh motives i think behind that too and there's some controversy yes. Yes. but we don't got time to talk about that but that's yeah, that yeah. is something but, but worth I, to, I at to least say. i feel like it's at least it's worth pointing out you know she's she's sort of in the same spiritual circle as like madame blavatsky <laughs> yeah you know yeah she it's so you know, bizarre she was born she was born in stockholm in you know 1862 right you know she's in school uh at the royal academy of fine arts graduates in 87 um you know and then in the early 1900s is, is working on these paintings yeah she is in the thick of this theosophy yeah Just, 
the this investigation into blending i th- i think a lot of like eastern philosophies with sort of this this feeling of lost connection right yeah that exists within european society at this time you yeah. know because you know and she was also part of a group the five yep. which was a circle you know a circle of, a secret circle of women doing mm. this stuff um kind of dope not gonna lie <laughs> but, but this is this is this is this is modernism this is yeah. this is the beginnings of it and in this interesting window she's she's notable you know one her paintings are gorgeous they're yes. you know these interesting geometric explorations of uh you know you, you could almost look at them as uh mandelas like yeah spiritual maps of the universe uh and ge- and and sacred geometry uh but you know she's notable for being the first but if anything if nothing else this is giving us a glimpse of this is what is going on and like you yeah. said who knows what didn't get recorded what didn't get saved what we'll never know about mm-hmm. i'm going to assume that there was more going on and we'll yeah. just kind of never know about it i think this is the uh this is the thing that 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 points to multiple possibilities multiple lineages for everything oh yeah no absolutely there's always a group of people on the side in the on the outskirts on the fringes working on that next breakthrough thing yeah absolutely and and that's you know i i think a good a nice kind of callback to even what you were talking about earlier of this idea of if somebody you know if somebody didn't do it somebody else kind of would it would eventually happen because i think historically these were all moving um to this point and you Mm -hmm. know and it is unfortunate that well actually it's you know what we'll spin this into the positive that it's even a good thing that we have discovered her work and have been yeah, able to uh, 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 attribute her to the canon of art history in this time period of modernism because it is, you know, important and, um, you know, I think essential in kind of making this framework and also diversifying it, you know, and, yeah. and, and changing for where these things come from. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I think in moving into our exhibit as well, and I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it, uh, and speaking of, you know, 1917 of... of uh, Hilma Alfklimt ending her kind of artistic career that in the same year is when Marcel Duchamp's uh, fountain comes to yes. fruition and is, and yes, is introduced yes, yes. into the art world. And I think, you know, what you know about it, what you don't, essentially, this is the birth of the ready-made sculpture and the first major, well, one of the first major challenges to the art world. And if people are kind of, mm-hmm. I think, ready uh, for this next, you know, we ha- we're looking at one here. We have a, a replica because there's multiple copies all over. You know, the Tate's got one. Philadelphia Museum of Art's got one. We have one, you know, uh, yeah. as you do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. I when they installed it, I asked yeah. them to also make it into a water fountain. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Well, this is ruined, but that's fine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was never used as a urinal. That's yeah, yeah, true. Well, 
it's otherwise just a hunk of porcelain and i figured we could also add some functionality to it even though that seems very it's very kind of yes. comp would have wanted. yeah well yeah i mean that's, that's so funny well yeah i mean i think it's also funny that the fact that this whole this work is literally conceived out of a conversation that he had with uh walter eisenberg and joseph stella in new york um because at this mm-hmm. point you know Duchamp would have moved to New York and he's working there from Paris and kind of, you know, is a part of the Society of Independent Artists and so on. And this is mm-hmm, whole mm-hmm. lineage and things that are happening with with him. And he's one of the artistic directors and so on. And um, he he essentially crafts this work through an anonymous uh identity that he creates which if you've seen the a ones pen name a pseudonym yeah you know his his work of r mutt or he signed, he mutt. signed it richard bachman no no that wasn't it no no as a uh stephen king's pseudonym oh uh, yes yeah i don't know that's over my head um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he signs it r mutt for richard mutt um and dates at 1917 and essentially anonymously submits this to the show. It was happening in, in 1917 for um, for the Society of Independent Artists. And they outright reject it, you know, saying that it, that's a, that it's a piece of sanitary wear and one associated with bodily waste and it could not be considered a work of art. And furthermore, was indecent. And this is one of the quotes taken uh, mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. that. And... That's the end of kind of that, and him and and Arzenberg resign in protest as this goes. Now it should be noted yeah. because I think this is one thing I didn't also realize. You know, is that he? You know, no one knows Duchamp did this except for like his friends. No, yeah, you know, they just assume <laughs> that some Richard Mutt character sent this urinal in as a work of art, and they were like, "This is ridiculous," and we can't show mm-hmm. that. Um, but you know, it should be noted that, that yeah, because then this goes into the um, the blind man's blind band publications which is one of the uh artistic publications i think in new york happening at the time and they uh defend it they defend this work stating that you know or because of the photograph that's taken by alfred stieglitz i believe that happens and that's mm-hmm. kind of when the public actually gets to see the fountain and in, in the real and in, in this yes. this publication happened and this real controversy started because you know you're having this conversation of what is art what can be mm-hmm. seen as art. Mm-hmm. And I just want to uh, maybe, you know, before we, we can dive into a conversation real quick about it, I wanted to just read this quote taken from that, which is, uh, Mr. Mutt's fountain is not immoral. That is absurd. No more than a bathtub is immoral. It is a fixture that you see every day in plumber's shop windows. Whether Mr. Mutt has his own hands made, the fountain has no importance. He chose it. He took an ordinary article of life, placed it so that its useful significance disappeared under the new title and point of view and created new thought for that object. And this is part of that um, publication that happened Mm -hmm. in May in 1917. And I think that's a really good way of establishing what this is and what Duchamp is kind of doing here. Because, you know, using this pseudoname to, as Armut, you know, a a fun little play on words because the German word of Armut means poverty, but then he named his first name Richard for rich man, Mm -hmm. you know, fun, fun, all these little details here and there. But there's just so many layers, you know, to the work itself. I know that he also chose the urinal in particular because he thought it would be kind of the most appalling object, even though people kind of found it the most aesthetically pleasing when <laughs> when twisted in this way, which I thought was a bit of irony on, on his end. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of... No, it's not iron, it's porcelain. Right, right, right. It's porcelain I don't know. But, you know, th- yeah. Essentially, this is kind of one of these major, you know, 
points to be made in this in this i mean this piece is this is this defines so much of what is going to occur just in the coming decades yeah um yeah and i feel like we we have to i'm because i think there's going to be people that look at this and are like okay well this is more pretentious artist crap like right but you're but you know it's it's a it's a urinal so it's more pretentious <laughs> artist piss than ah, crap yes yes yeah. but that aside like explaining what is going on here in 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 terms of what criticism of art had been up until that point you know in in, in the previous couple centuries you know with with you know conquest going across europe and as you know an army would roll in loot something and you know as public museums started to become more and more of a thing people became more and more accustomed to encountering art in museums right that there is this there are the salons in paris there's the louvre uh there are these institutions that create context for work and people are not sort of aware of this yet mm. but it was not unremarked upon when the louvre was sort of first instated you know basically made out of stuff that european that uh specifically napoleon had looted not only across like the uh north africa and the middle east but you know central europe and yeah. italy like it was rem it was not unremarked upon that people said you took a statue that had some local significance and reverence and put it in the museum arrested it from its context in the world mm -hmm. and duchamp is is coming out of this lineage of thought this suddenly becoming aware of the lens through which we view things. He's drawing attention to the fact that, you know, this is a manufactured item that still has considerations of design and functionality, but it 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 suddenly opens your eyes up to the the fact that everything that they would have encountered in that period. For really they, they were one of the first generations that everything they encountered was beginning to become mass produced right and that there was still design and there was still maybe this kind of consideration but the world was the world was was changing in a really profound way and you see that when you when you look at the fountain through that lens mm -hmm. and it kind of took something as crazy and radical as putting a fountain in the context, <laughs> putting a urinal in the yeah. context of artwork that it makes you realize, oh, wow, maybe I'm a painter, but I didn't make my brush. I didn't, I don't make my own paint anymore. I don't make my, I don't make all of the components. Even if I stretch my own canvases, I'm not weaving the fabric. I'm not, right. I'm not involved in every part of production. And you suddenly see the larger system that you are now a part of. Uh, yep. And it it is that this is the importance. This is why 
we taught it's been over a hundred years and we are still talking about yeah. this piece of artwork yeah which maybe wow. at the time just was a funny prank that suddenly because <laughs> that could also be true i think both things could be true yeah you know i mean i think he knew to a certain degree what he yes. was doing like I, oh yeah no, but, no 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 i i do not i don't want to i don't want to diminish <laughs> this no but, but but it is that challenge. But, but you, yeah, you, you could you could see that you could see that type of thing as like this is all bullshit. What if we, what yeah. if we put a urinal? No, something? but I think that's that's how we think now. I've thought that way. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, what if we do this? And that's uh, you know the best part about making art is that sometimes it's like you have to break the rules in order to change things. Yeah. And, and people, you know, in, in terms of how we follow these lineages, people tend to hate it for a while. Look at yeah. every yeah. you know documentary. But, but hey, hey, you're, yeah. Your, your kids, your kids are gonna love it. Oh, nice! You, that might be a little new for this, but <laughs> might be a little new for you guys. But your kids are gonna love it. <laughs> Cut oh, to uh, it's uh yeah, Michelle, Michelle, it's me, your cousin, Marvin, Marvin Duchamp. You know that new artwork you've been oh looking God. for? Well, listen to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think like you know if you follow like every documenta that comes out, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, uh, every mm -hmm. single curatorial vision is criticized after it happens mm -hmm. because it's so you know ahead of its time uh, in a lot of the cases that it's not until the next one happens every five years that people realize mm -hmm. oh my god that was actually really set the stage for what it is now and I think this comes out of part just like. Yeah, what if what if we like just put a urinal up there? That'd be funny. But I think also it is like he's done it before, you know, with certain yeah. things, and he's challenged these kind of notions. Uh, and I think it's a part of that. But I think artists always just kind of play, and that's the fun aspect of 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 making work. But I think it's when you can see something that comes out of intent, but also is so fundamental to challenging the systems in place and kind of shifting where you know artwork is going to move mm -hmm. later on and how it, you know, with the influences of Dada and other things into, you know, the 1950s and 60s. Well, yeah, because, okay, I mean, t take this, this sort of w what we have going on right here. Fast forward to post-World War One. Mm -hmm. What you just said, like, Dada is going to embrace this. Yes. You know, wholeheartedly. Oh, yeah. This complete deconstruction of, uh, these these modes of hierarchy there's a there's a really great piece written by uh, boris Groys. um mm. if if walter benjamin's art in the age of mechanical reproduction is a little too much to digest i actually really recommend uh the boris Groys uh piece written about uh duchamp and uh and nisha you know sort of talking about like looking back wow. on this stuff a hundred years later you know, uh, right. on what on what they're doing and, and sort of tying it all together, tying together Benjamin and Duchamp and Nietzsche as as all, all of them recognizing uh, the ends of eras, you know, mm. Nietzsche seeing the end of Western history, Duchamp seeing the end of art. Interesting. Yeah, uh, the they're both revealing our relationship to objects because that is that material has come to 
define modern society right in, yeah in, in in a certain way it's uh you know how and in, in the in the broad ways you can even view material but that is how so much of this becomes defined for you know now now over a hundred years god yeah mm-hmm. huh no it's interesting though in terms of that comparison through the, the decades and so and seeing how that huh Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah it's a lot to think on on that one it <laughs> you is. Stumped, it you is. have stumped me but it is it is rather <laughs> curious i mean i think yeah for sure i mean art in the age of mechanical reproduction is is of course i think essential even in mentioning unfortunately that, required reading it is required reading um i you know even even between us talking about it i think it's just you know that's your homework everybody on this tour you now have homework uh, no, I'm kidding. Oh, there's no, there's no, I'm sure they're happy. there's no homework. What do you mean? No, 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 there's no, there's no homework, but you know, I, I recommend, I, I think we both recommend to go and read it if you're interested in, in what we're discussing here and, and, um, as a, as a source material, because that is something that appears even now today mm -hmm, in all mm -hmm. artists working, uh, for yeah. sure we'll mention it because it actually mm -hmm. does play a, a major role. And I think it's also, you know, if you're, if you're somebody in particular who is, you know, interested in art or you're working in the field right now, or, you know, you're even just entering into other aspects of art making, be it in craft or in illustration and graphic design, et cetera. You know, that is a, that is a reading I, I highly recommend because it is mm -hmm. important in changing thinking in unlearning to learn, but also, you know, ah. in this, in this idea of, of, of where we are at in an age of mechanical reproduction, in an age of industrialization yeah. and globalized world, what does uh -huh. it mean? Um, and to make things. And mm -hmm. I think speaking of materials and speaking of things, one of the last works on our tour I kind of wanted to talk about um, kind of deals with that revitalization of a older technique or an older work of, of making yeah. things. And that deals with um, the artist Maria Martinez and specifically her um, blackware ceramics that she brings back. Mm -hmm. And we have one here, which is a uh, black on black ceramic vessel uh, from mm -hmm. 1939, which is actually kind of nice timeline wise, because we've really been making yes. this nice linear uh, attraction. And uh, you know, this came out of, uh, I'm not a ceramicist. Zan, you do work in ceramics. I remember, right. You've worked in ceramics, you know, you know, I have worked pot. in ceramics. I am a notably terrible potter. Okay. Um. So that, but <laughs> see, that's the, I've never touched I, ceramics. I will, look, here's the, here's the thing. I will judge pottery. Yeah, same, I same. That. I, hey, hey, just because just because I'm bad at it doesn't mean I won't <laughs> feel for your beginner's hump. You know, I'm checking. I'm picking things up. I'm checking the weight. I'm right, on yeah. to you. Okay, okay. So you got it. You're really the curator here on on the ceramics. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, <laughs> tastemaker. Yes, you know, yes. I'm a, I'm a real. Uh, I'm, I'm a real uh, Sam Phillips. Oh. I, uh, you know, have no none of my own talent, but I can recognize it in others. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, it, 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 you know, the, the guy yeah. that discovered Elvis. Uh, oh, see, I didn't know that. That went over my head again. Man, I'm... Yeah, ugh. and Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins, Jesus. and Roy Orbison, and Jerry Lee Lewis. Jesus, oh my God. I guess That's that I wild. think it... Yeah, not being a musician himself. He just got the ear for it. That's really yeah. it, um, but yeah, but essentially, Maria Martinez is a was a was a native uh, ceramicist and fine artist who's working in the in the twentieth century. 
and is really connected with this Pueblian pottery and Pueblian history mm-hmm, being mm-hmm. of the from of herself. And she's working in revitalizing the culture that she is a part of and her indigenous roots mm-hmm. and bringing it back to the non art uh, market or the, the non like artist makers, but also the fine art world and reintroducing mm-hmm. this pottery as fine art rather than utilitarian objects. And kind of just like a little mm-hmm. bit of background on these um, Pueblian pots. They originally were used to store. Uh, oh, actually originally, you know, pre railroad, these were used to store food for cooking and ceremonial occasions and were mm-hmm. really, you know, revered and essential in part of the culture. And then when the railroad comes through, it kind of diminishes the use because, you know, through industrialization and modernization, you're getting uh, cheaper items, cheaper pottery, cheaper tools for cooking and others. Right, and it kind yeah. of gets rid of the need for that. Um, you know, I think erasure of culture also plays a part into that and identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she reintroduces this type of pottery and this technique that she has for the Blackware ceramics by, you know, mm-hmm. in 1910. So yeah. again, very early on introducing this technique and and kind of re-approaching mm-hmm. and re-engaging this work as something that's not just an average utilitarian object but it is an actual work of art in itself and i kind of just want to read yeah. um a, a quote here regarding the process to kind of give an example mm-hmm. of where this is coming from and so the clay was found locally to make the potter- pottery stronger, it had to be mixed with a temper made from shards of broken pots that had been pounded into a powder of volcanic ash. When mixed with mm-hmm. water, the elasticity of the clay and the strength of the temper could be formed into different shapes, including a rounded pot, known as an ola, or a flat plate. Using only the artist's hands, for the pot- potting wheel was not used. And the dried vessel needed to be scraped, sanded, smoothed, and covered with a slip, um, which is a thin solution of clay and water, and the slip was polished by rubbing a smooth stone over the surface to flatten the clay and create a shiny finish, a difficult and time-consuming process. And over the polished slip, the pot was covered with designs painted with an iron-rich solution using either pulverized iron ore or a reduction of wild plants called guaco. These would be dried but required a high-temperature firing to change the brittle clay to a hard ceramics, even without uh, kilns. The ceramicists were able to create a fire hot enough to transform the pot by using manure. And these are kind of this, this, uh, the techniques used in this sort of process, which is pretty intense, mm-hmm. you know, after, after hearing yeah. that. It's, it, there's a lot going into these, but I think it's so, you know, interesting. Well, it's, yeah, mm. it, it's, it's incredible because you're... The, the unique thing going on here, especially for this time period, is you're seeing someone get to do this get to do something that I think we're kind of used to either people doing yeah. later or people yeah. or I think Europeans taking advantage of a slowly dying practice to sort of right. repackage as, you know, craft art. Um, yes. And I think this provides more evidence that people independent of because uh, I mean, think think about the narrative that we have of this time period is that only Europe mm-hmm. is having this critical self-evaluation of a uh, of forms of craft that are no longer functional or useful, but they feel uh, are valuable to them culturally. 
Um, right. You know, if this is painting, statuary, uh, textiles, all of these uh, different forms, you know, metallurgy, uh-huh. all, all of these things that are, they, they, can, they can glimpse the obsolescence. And, and we have this idea that everywhere else on Earth, is, everyone else is just doing things for purely utilitarian, practical reasons, and right. that if they had another way to do it and it was easier, they would just abandon that. And I feel like that's still the narrative that we have now, that, yes. you know, people, you know, are not going to make things the traditional way if they are given easier way to do it. And in some cases that's that's kind of true yeah um this you know shows that i i think i think this challenges that Mm -hmm. quite a bit Mm -hmm. um that notion and that other cultures are capable of thinking critically about themselves (laughs) that's not a uniquely european invention and i think that's that's she's an important addition to this especially for that reason exactly uh, yeah no yeah it, it's 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 interesting like like you're saying as well and i think it's it's such an early introduction of revitalization of culture and importance and holding on to something that you know has clearly been attacked and almost erased by europeans yeah. right by invaders <laughs> and colonizers and i think you know, it's so, you know, learning about her work, being able to read about it and study, mm-hmm. it's so interesting that this is happening during a time that, again, if if you're kind of just going through the general learning process of this time period, it's very much in mm-hmm. the Western focus, Eurocentrism. It's only, you know, art is now becoming something bigger than an object. It's becoming something bigger mm-hmm. than, than the narrative painting. And, and yeah, it is, right? But it's also yeah. something deeper, than that and human yeah. not not even nationwide or not even like you know cultural mm-hmm. it's very human i think to want to look further into things and to manifest these ideas through physical objects or through mm-hmm. you know physical means or even conceptual ones as we'll find later uh, and i think mm-hmm. this is just such an you know this is something happening now like you were saying this is more i think popular where we're also realizing that maybe certain things aren't just craft they're you know, works of art and and important cultural items that need to be kind of saved and sustained and, and maybe, you know, serve a purpose bigger than the one that can be, that it's being used for. And I think her way of going about this, her message, and also just this sort of, you know, wanting to share that with the fine art world and, and, and defending it as fine art, because which I, I think it personally it is, um, Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's such a it's such a powerful move, and you know she's also working with her family on this as well. Her mm-hmm. husband and others are involved, so it's not even just, you know, yeah. it's so interesting you know, to think about because it's it's not even just making the objects. She's not just the artist in the studio making these pots that are culturally significant and bringing them out. It, it, it's also kind of an engaged practice too. There's a communal yeah. aspect of it. There's bringing this into. Uh, yeah, you know, New I, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing that we forget that yeah. production was a lifestyle. Yeah, you yeah. know, and and it still and it still is for certain people. But produ- production was yeah, the farming, mm-hmm. pottery, textiles, the you know, in, in contemporary times we definitely 
hesitate to conflate our identities entirely with what our jobs are. Right. And I think what Martinez and, you know, kind of other artists that are trying to make a case for craft art, they are pointing out that um, there are there are modes outside of industrial production where things that we make mm-hmm. can and should be part of our identities because as yeah. humans, we are makers. Exactly, um, yeah. And that we are, you know, whether whether it's, you know, sort of these ancient practices of pottery and bread and clothing and food and everything... It is drawing attention to a a system outside of our current system where if we are defined by our jobs, we find that incredibly depressing. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. If, you know, uh, w- with some exceptions, I mean, I think there's there's people there. There, there are still noble professions that exist that. <laughs> people are very proud to be a part of sure um but i i i i mean in turn if we're talking about lifestyles that are about production this is singing a very different song than someone overworked and underpaid in a factory yeah absolutely um is is going is going to feel uh because mm-hmm. It is uh, it is appealing to something ancient, but is answering a modernist concern. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I the thing about all of these guys is and gals is a commitment to some kind of discipline because yeah, they're all critiquing institutions but i don't think any of them are anti-discipline right and i you know because okay to, to go back to walter benjamin for a second you know his benjamin was watching the rise of fascism mm-hmm you know, which it takes us a little bit further in our chronology that we've been addressing so far, you know, basically to the rise of, of fascism in Europe. But watching how the, the proliferation of mass mass marketed media, mm-hmm. you know, uh, easily reprintable photos, posters, and all of these things that uh, you know, because what what fascism needs is these easily um, transmitted ideas that do not with all of these ideas they fall apart almost as soon as you apply any critical thinking, right? But you need to distribute them fast enough and activate enough anger and activate enough tribal mm-hmm. emotion yeah to get people to act in these horrific ways 
and it's sort of uh, okay like it to, to draw it to sort of a contemporary lens and and this is something that i'm still trying to work out in my head it is the the complete lack of aesthetic in in far right you know conservatism in the united states now like where you know donald trump is no longer president people are still advocating that he become president again or that he secretly still is the president or he will be re-inaugurated later this month <laughs> as president <laughs> okay it's but what is the what is the symbol of it all what is because the the flag for trump is his name that's what the trump flag is it's just the word trump if that don't sum it up though it is i mean because they have no philosophy <laughs> the tr trump supporters they they all agree they love him and yet i have a feeling their opinions are much more uh varied i hesitate to say diverse yeah but are yeah. more varied than i think i think you would imagine I, and mm -hmm. it, it's it's these easily distributed short sound bites that that whip people up into a frenzy well yeah i mean know? it's it, it's it's very much reminiscent of like marietti's like the theaters in italy which were used yeah. for to promote fascism right you know where they would mm -hmm. go and they would they set up in front of crowds and then aggravate a crowd to, to have them throw things and like literally stop start brawls in the middle of the streets yeah. but it creates that machismo and that you know what you need for to feed mm -hmm. fascism and i think in this in the kind of trump era of of these things you you saw that except it's not really riled under a nationalistic well kind of is but kind of isn't because it's <laughs> you know i mean now it's just at this point where anytime i see an american the nazis flag had I graphic designers the nazis had had capable graphic yeah. designers yeah and, i mean it's true and and now and nowadays everything that is right wing or that is far enough right wing because i know there's right. plenty of other bs in 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 the middle and the near right yeah but there's there's no there's no competent artists there's no they fired them all there <laughs> there's no there there's no one uh that is there is no creative person of um of good standing of good reputation that has any integrity mm-hmm because even if they think those things, even if there are those artists that are harboring either tribalist beliefs or xenophobic, racist undertones, they're smart enough to keep it to themselves most of the time. Yeah. They do not... They recognize on some level that it is contrary to their image right you know right yeah and that that's that's the bizarre thing of you know all these things these these rhymes that we see of essentially a, a century ago right yeah you know pl playing playing out right now and and it's it's interesting it's terrifying yeah but it uh 
as we sort of talk about reproducible technology as we you know come to the end of our tour there's one more artist that actually i would like to contribute since you uh you stole mine uh <laughs> it was worked in together to talk about this is always a this is a participatory work san mm-hmm mm-hmm this is Supernatural on the Rocks, a new Supernatural podcast hosted by two of the voices behind Glee on the Rocks. I am Emily, a longtime viewer of Supernatural who could never let it go. And I'm Mandy, a fan of the start who did let it go, but it just wouldn't stay gone. Every episode, we cover a season of Supernatural. Digging into the mythology, the characters, and the fandom it left behind. With extra episodes when we need to talk just a little bit more. Because there's always more to talk about, isn't there? So join us to remember the road that was at Supernatural on the Rocks. And this is someone who's interestingly their entire life was this era that we were talking about. And I wanted to talk about Robert Johnson. Hmm. The uh Delta Blues guitar player that uh many attribute a, a the birth of rock and roll too. Uh, he lived from 1911 to 1938 in, you know, just only on this earth for 27 years and only recording and well-known, relatively well-known for about two years of his life. Hmm. All of his notoriety uh, was after he was dead and he was living in a, in a remote enough part of Mississippi that let me give you an idea of just how uh, the, the bizarre posthumous fame that Robert Johnson got. So so he dies in like August of 38, right? Okay. And uh, John Hammond was looking for him in 1938 to book him a gig at Carnegie Hall. Oh, wow. And then, uh, <laughs> uh, and then Alan Lomax, the musicologist, was looking for him in, like, 1941 Jesus. to record him. Oh, my they God. They didn't know. They were looking for him, and they didn't know he was dead yet. God. Yeah. It's it's incredibly uh, a a bizarre story. Are you familiar with kind of the the legend of Robert Johnson? Not because I think yeah, not I think really. He's sort of a larger than life figure in American uh, music history. No, that's beyond me, man. I'm not I'm not familiar. Okay, so you know Robert Johnson. You know he's he's born uh, in in the uh, in Mississippi. Uh, his uh, his and he he is the result of an affair but uh his 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 father and his you know not biological but uh his mother's husband they were of some means his his father was you know run out of town by a lynch mob because remember this is Yikes. you know america in <laughs> in the 19 uh right. 10s and 20s right right um and in the south to boot but, you know, his father was uh, a landowner and, uh, uh, you know, his uh, family had a furniture making business. He was of some means and was actually for uh, compared to um, the, you know, his fellow blues musicians was actually kind of well educated. You know, he could he could write. He had a proper 
a sort of education at the time, you know, was going um, uh, back and forth uh, from, you know, more remote areas uh, and then basically going back to school. Hmm. But, you know, his life is beset by tragedy. He marries, uh, uh, he has two different wives. Uh, both of them die very young. And he he's notable for being, you know, early on, he's a he's good with the harmonica and he actually crossed paths with uh the other uh uh famous blues musician of the time, Sunhouse. And Sunhouse mentioned he's actually not a very good he wasn't a very good guitar player. He was uh, Sunhouse says embarrassingly bad. Oh wow. <laughs> but somehow, probably through hard work and uh, discipline, as I was saying before, mm-hmm. but a lot of people attribute to him uh, selling his soul to the devil. He becomes incredible at guitar huh. um, and music and is, is shown to be very gifted. He can just listen to things and learn how to play them. He has, you know, an interest in country and jazz, and but right. and, and would basically, you know, perform on street corners and juke joints, but playing pop music. Hmm. But he has this this darker idea, this this deeper music that he wants to record, and in, th- in 1936 and 37, he's able to record um, some of his uh, Delta Blues music, and, you know, he actually has a little bit of success with a couple of his recordings, um, d- doesn't see a lot of the fruits of his labor, but, you know, some, uh, he does make a recording, and it sells, like, 5,000 copies, which, wow. you know, he's... Yeah, it's not a lot, but it's it shows that people are starting to recognize him. Mm-hmm. But then he sort of just dies under mysterious circumstances. Uh, you know, it feeds into the whole sold his soul to the devil type right. of thing. Um, he also knew a blues guitar player turned uh, preacher Isaiah Ike Zimmerman. Oh, wow who was said to get his musical power from playing in graveyards. That's fun. But, you know, he, he dies, and his his death was never really, like, investigated, because, you know, at the time, they just like, ah, oh, it's another dead black guy on the side of the road. Mm. You know, right. there's so many different stories. There's... There there are accounts that seem to confirm he was probably suffering from syphilis. Oh. But mm. there's other accounts saying he was poisoned by a man whose wife Johnson flirted with. You huh. know, there's there's a million different kind of stories that uh you know that float around. But his it's it's this whole kind of perfect mystery of who he was that we know so little about him we have to speculate about so much and yet and yet we we have we have so little information of the man and yet we have his 29 songs that he recorded Hmm. and you can hear his sensibilities to even just the medium that he had he had aspirations and plans of where popular music was going to go in a really interesting way, not only because of, you know, sort of the darker tones of his songwriting, right. but even just his ability to make a three-minute song, because he's like, well, a 78 record holds three minutes. 
that's how long the song has to be to, uh, you know, have a radio hit. Right. Like, in a huh. weird way, he kind of predicted the the <laughs> length of pop songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jeez. And 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 ha- and had all of these these sensibilities and we have to speculate all of this just off of his work his work is the thing that persists because at least he he lived his life overlapped with this era of reproducible music right yeah you know and that's you know that's sort of the one thing that we didn't get to talk as much about maybe we'll talk about it more as we continue on with our uh, exhibition in the coming weeks but you know this is the time of reproducible technology sound film photography yeah these are going to become important things and the medium through which we receive these transmissions is going to become a part of the artwork itself yes and absolutely just think thinking about the impact that robert johnson had after he died on people he could not have fathomed you know right it is uh it, it it's kind of amazing the the second life that this artistic technology granted him but also this profound sadness of his life yeah the little bits that we have of it it just sounds like this american tragedy right yeah and it and there were you know there probably was joy and there probably were great rewarding moments it's said that he had an incredible rapport with crowds you know mm. and he was a great performer but it's it, it, it it's it's a tragic american story it's yeah it, it's right at that intersection of you know racial and class oppression and disregard mm. that yeah. it's it, it's a miracle that uh what we have of him even survives yeah absolutely i um mm-hmm. i think that too is is remarkable that you know we do have that we have those remnants and can learn from them and add it again to this yeah. kind of timeline and you know it's i can you know go look it up right now right and be able yeah. to find that through these these uh reproductible means and the the ways of kind of living uh posthumously mm-hmm. through these through these works i think is you know it's really important to i think everything we've been discussing in this section yeah. in this in this in these specific works and i think in in kind of going forward with it too Mm-hmm. but um i think i think that brings us to a close on on i i don't know if you have anything else to add but on this section of um of art in the 20th century uh-huh uh yeah i'm excited for where we're going to go with this mm-hmm. uh, in the coming weeks we hope you are excited <laughs> to keep uh coming on this journey with us yeah it's this was this was a little more ambitious than what we have uh, done in the past so um i guess we'll learn as we go yeah that sounds about right i mean you know All maybe right. maybe sounds it'll like plan yeah maybe it'll be like one of those ill-conceived you know critiques that we'll get immediately <laughs> but then later on people will realize that it was actually ahead of its time ah <laughs> yes 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 yes, yes. The, the history history will remember us fondly yeah, the future monks, the future Latin monks. 
uh, will come back. <laughs> the scribes of the future will write this down. But no, yeah. I, I thank you all so much for, for coming with us on this part one journey mm-hmm. of art in the 20th century. We really appreciate you listening. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any comments or questions, we would love to hear from you on social yes, media. We please. are uh, at Uncanny Museum on Twitter, at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. Follow us there. Please, 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 please leave us some ratings and reviews. We would really love it. That would be fantastic. Please. Uh, Don't forget to check out uh, the other great shows like uh, Force Football Facts and Supernatural on the Rocks, our friends over there. Yeah, and we're so glad you uh, came by the Uncanny County Museum today. Uh, you got anything you want to plug, uh, Jojo? Uh, just to check out my one, my other work, The Midnight Drive, available on RadioPapeste.org. How about you, Zan? What you got going on? Well, uh, my work is currently uh, on display at the uh, Decisional Ooh. Gallery. Oh, we didn't even talk about Decisional. Mm. Um, <laughs> 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 um you know, we, we, there, there were so, so much. many manifestos. So there were so many artistic manifestos we could have uh, read, and we spared you people it's... that. But in addition to that, my band Mothman will be performing at the Florida State Fair later in April, if you happen to be in the area. And uh, I'll uh, be uh, putting out some more information on that soon. But yes, there will be a Mothman sighting <gasps> to all it's of happening. our our fans in uh in the tampa bay area exciting exciting yes uh, everybody everybody will remember the the 2021 florida state fair this is when yeah this is it. mothman really took off this is the this is the moment right now so mm-hmm, i think it's mm-hmm. gonna be good check them out yeah i i wasn't so i'm in line at you know trader joe's and getting my food uh and you know just all these hipster dudes and beanies because you know they work at trader joe's right absolutely Uh, yeah everybody just like has to dress like an art student to work there (laughs) yeah and they're just like talking about how uh later this month uh venues are supposed to start opening up uh for music and they're all like, yeah, they're going to open. Who's going to go? Right. And, like, and also, who's going to play? What band thinks they're yeah. important enough that they get to break the COVID streak? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, hopefully, things will be safe enough for this uh, Mothman show. I'm very much looking forward to it. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you can follow me at Xanasaurus on Instagram. And you can follow me at Josemino Art on Instagram. From the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I've been Josemino. Bye. Bye.